So the disease was evolving, the science was evolving, and we felt that it was necessary to provide our community with an accurate set of information so that ultimately they can make sure that they or their loved ones can remain safe during the pandemic. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic is an entirely new complication. I'm Sarah Beatty. And I'm Diane Mulligan. While we're learning more about their risks every day, figuring out how to work, get health care and groceries, and see family and friends face to face are particularly challenging in the COVID-19 era. This special series of episodes in the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast is designed to help you navigate this new COVID-19 world while living with lung cancer. We've been talking about the experience of living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic for several months now, although it feels like a lot longer. One thing is for sure, while it's a challenge for everyone, for those living with lung cancer, the pandemic is forcing thoughtful calculations and hard choices. Stepping in to help with a unique collaboration our LCFA Speakers Bureau member, Janet Freeman-Daly, along with Dr. Upal Basuroy, the Director of Research at Longevity Foundation, and Dr. Amy Moore of GoTo Foundation. They synthesized the latest research and information about how COVID-19 affects those living with lung cancer and compile regular updates that are distributed by a number of lung cancer sister organizations, including LCFA. I got the chance recently to sit down with Janet and Upal to talk about how they got started on this wonderful project. The first time we heard about COVID-19 was in around February of this year, February 2020, when we started learning about COVID-19 as a disease. And one of the first things that we learned about the disease was that people who have lung comorbidities, such as COPD or asthma or lung cancer, they are at a higher risk of developing a more severe form of the disease. And that made us sort of think, hmm, you know what, here we are talking about a new virus affecting a community who is especially vulnerable to this particular virus. And that's when Janet Freeman Daly and Dr. Amy Moore from the, from the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer and me from Longevity Foundation, the three of us decided to come together to write these advocacy updates and it was sort of an opportunistic collaboration, to be very honest. So Janet is a scientist. She's a rocket scientist and a survivor and activist. Dr. Amy Moore is a cancer researcher and a virologist. And I'm a cancer researcher and a public health scientist as well. So it was sort of a match made in heaven for the three of us to sort of come together. And for also our love for science, I think we realized that the pandemic is not going to go away anywhere. In fact, the first time when we issued the statement was March 3rd, and the WHO declared COVID-19 as a pandemic on March 11th. And the goal of the statements was to synthesize and update our community with the latest information about the virus and the disease and how to live with the fear of risk, as you pointed out. And it became even more important for us through these updates when we realized that the pandemic was evolving so rapidly. So what was true today may actually not be true tomorrow. So the disease was evolving, the science was evolving, and we felt that it was necessary to provide our community with a curated, 
up-to-date and accurate set of information so that ultimately they can have those candid discussions with their doctor and they can make sure that they or their loved ones can remain safe during the pandemic. And we were also able to bring in something of a personal viewpoint because I was in Seattle where the virus first showed up and Amy was down in the Bay Area and Upal's in New York City. So we all were in the initial hotspots and that got us going. I um, thought I had symptoms that sounded somewhat like COVID when we first started talking about it. And when the first death started showing up in Seattle, I tried to get tested and discovered that nobody had a test. And we talked about this. You, I mean, it was a harrowing description of just trying to get, and you would think that someone living with lung cancer with COVID symptoms would be right at the first of the line to get a test. Not so. So we were doing our best, the three of us, trying to get the information out to people because there was so much confusion and so much difficulty finding things. Um, We picked up a little bit from the patient groups about the kind of concerns that were coming up. And eventually, we realized that we needed to try and make sure we were capturing the right concerns. So we did a survey of people out on the internet in early June to see whether or not we'd been addressing their concerns and indeed what their concerns are about COVID-19. And this actually has turned into two abstracts that got accepted for the um, AACR COVID-19 and Cancer Conference later in July this year. So we have one that's talking about the value of all of us coming together across the major lung cancer advocacy groups to provide accurate evidence-based information to patients, but also what are the patient concerns and what what should we be addressing? So for instance, one of our one of the top concerns was how do I know what it's safe to return to activities? You know, when are things going to be normal? And that's why now we're beginning to focus more on a risk-based approach. How much risk are you comfortable with? What's the risk level of these activities? What's your individual risk if you were to get this disease of having a severe case or dying from it? All of us are making those calculations, but people who are living with lung cancer are making very um, careful calculations um, about about those risk factors. Well, for me, um, my doctor, Dr. Kamage, is in Denver, and I'm in Seattle. I I'm not going to pick up and get on an airplane to fly out there. So we were taking advantage of telehealth to be able to talk to each other over the internet, Um, which in the one hand helps you get access to some of the top experts without having to travel, which is terrific. Um, And the goal is to try and keep the patient as safe as possible and and keep them out of a clinic where they might be exposed to COVID-19. So those are upsides. On the other hand, ironically, our power went out 20 minutes before my conversation and I ended up doing it on my telephone. (laughs) And since the power was out, just about everybody else wanted to be on their phones at the same time. So it was not the best connection. So there, there is this um, digital divide. There are some people like me that have the technology and I can, I can talk to the doctor and it's going to be a great advantage if we can keep that going. On the other hand, there's people who may not have access due to understanding the technology, they can't afford the technology, they can't afford internet, and it's going to make it more difficult for them to see their doctor. So we have to proceed in a way that doesn't increase the disparities we already know exist. That's a really good point. And Upal, from your perspective, you know, in public health, can you talk about how 
um, some of these security measures have been put into place to keep people, people safe when they do access care, when they do need to go into the clinic, when they do need to, to go to the hospital. Um, how are healthcare providers doing that to make it as safe as possible for folks who are living with lung cancer? That's a great question, Sarah. And if you'd asked me this question two months ago, I would have said that, oh, you know what, the pandemic is going to go away and we don't need to worry about these situations. But as we realize that the pandemic is here to stay, I feel that in-person healthcare delivery is also changing. So when we talk to doctors and we realize and we talk to them about how their practices are changing, how their practices are evolving to make sure that patients, when they're doing their in-person visits, are kept safe and making sure that risk to COVID-19 is absolutely minimal. I think some of the top things that come to mind are social distancing. All clinics are encouraging and mandating social distancing and mandatory masks. So if a patient actually goes to a clinic without a mask, then most clinics will offer the patient and in fact insist that the patient wears a mask during a visit. In addition to that, a lot of hospitals have plexiglasses that separate counters from patients. So again, minimizing exposure. And then finally, all clinics and hospitals are doing mandatory temperature checks to again, make sure that anyone who is even a little symptomatic or there's a slight suggestion of being infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, those patients are treated in a different fashion, again, to minimize risk of exposure. And I think when we are talking about in-person care, especially for lung cancer patients, Sarah, one of the things we do need to keep in mind is that lung cancer is a type of cancer with a high symptom burden. And oftentimes, patients require their caregivers to visit the clinic with them to make sure that after a treatment, for example, after infusion, or a radiation session that the caregivers are there to help them come back home, to drive them back home. But those policies have changed, again, keeping in mind that patient safety is priority. So it is important for patients to actually also check with their practices before they think of having a caregiver escort them to the clinic to ensure that their practice or their infusion center is allowing caregivers and I also tell patients to advocate for themselves. For example, if a patient is feeling really unwell and needs to go in for an infusion, then they should absolutely speak to their doctor and to their clinic to make sure that they are able to have that type of support when they finish the treatment. Now, talking about treatment, I think we also know that chemotherapy is often a mainstay for treatment in lung cancer. So what we've heard from Doctors is often infusion rooms used to have four patients at the same time, but now they have two patients again to minimize exposure. And then of course, radiation therapy. If there is a COVID positive patient who is being treated, then a lot of practices will make sure that the COVID positive patient receives radiation at the end of the day to make sure that that entire radiation therapy room then gets disinfected overnight. So hospitals are doing everything to make sure that they minimize exposure to lung cancer patients. But I, I think it's also important to realize that the risk in your particular area may vary with time. Hospitals that two months ago were doing just fine are now reaching capacity in some states, and they may not be able to separate the COVID-19 patients from the cancer patients. So it's very important to talk to your doctor and find out what the risk is at your particular hospital. I think it's also important to realize that the hospitals are still learning how to handle all of this. So for instance, when I went in for my brain MRI recently, 
um, I had my mask and I, they came in and they said, well, is that mask have metal across the nose bridge? And I said, well, I don't think so. And they run a, they ran a wand over it and it did. So they wanted me to take my mask off. And I asked them, how often do you clean that MRI machine? And they say, we give it a complete wipe down inside and wait 10 minutes in between patients. Well, now that we're learning more that this disease can be spread by aerosol, I'm not convinced that in 10 minutes, all of that is going to be cleared out. So I asked, ended up asking them for another mask. So you, you still keep in mind your level of risk and it might vary with time. So as we've been talking, the situation has, is changing quite literally minute by minute. And I'm sure that it's really difficult for people who are living with lung cancer to stay caught up with what are the latest recommendations? What are the latest things that I need to think about? What are some of the things that have popped up in your survey results, Janet? Well, as I mentioned, people are concerned about returning to activities, but they're also concerned about um, family members who might be at high risk, how they can keep themselves and their families safe, um, what kind of testing is available both to identify an active case or whether or not they've already had it, and uh, treatments and vaccines that might become available are all very high on the list. And UPAL's been uh, tracking some of those. And I can start talking a little bit about the different tests. And as Janet mentioned, there are two types of tests. Uh, the antibody test is used to detect if you've had COVID infections in the past. So if you're test positive for an antibody, that means that in the past you've been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus at some point. The second type of test detects an active COVID infection, and that's typically done through a nasal or a throat swab. And that tells us if you have the infection at this point of time. And the antibody test is done with a blood sample. And one of the things that we do need to keep in mind is that in, with this particular virus, if you've been exposed to it in the past and you have a positive antibody test, that does not mean that you may have current immunity. So essentially a positive antibody test at this point does not suggest that you have immunity to a second or a third or a fourth COVID infection. And so if you have a positive antibody test, we recommend that you continue to maintain all forms of social distancing and other public health precautions that you would do in, in, in the past. Now, having said that, I think two other pieces that are incredibly important for People living with lung cancer and their loved ones are COVID-19 vaccines and COVID-19 treatments. As we speak right now, there are about 178 different vaccine candidates that are in clinical development. And out of these 178, about 14 are in clinical trials. But I do need to point out that we need really well-designed, randomized clinical trials to really determine which of these vaccines will work in our population. Now, some of the general thinking that's been going around in the scientific community based on experience with past coronaviruses is the fact that it's going to be very similar to flu vaccination, where we will probably need to take a vaccine against 
COVID-19 every year. Now, this is very different from other types of vaccination. For example, a polio vaccine, which once you've had that vaccine, you have lifelong protection. So we think that COVID-19 vaccines will not offer lifelong protection. You have to take doses of these vaccines over different periods of time. But again, as I mentioned, we are still waiting to see how these different clinical trials pan out. I personally am very excited about some of the vaccine candidates, but again, it's very early to say what we will see over the next year or so. Now, we need to keep in mind that treatments are only for those people who have already been exposed to the virus and have an active infection. And again, as we speak, there are around 262 different drugs that are being developed for COVID-19. And some of these drugs are repurposed drugs. And when I say repurposed, they're being used for other diseases. And now they're being tried out in COVID-19. And a drug that comes to mind is hydroxychloroquine, which has received a lot of attention. This drug was developed originally for malaria, and it's also used for autoimmune diseases. And earlier on during the pandemic, there were a few clinical studies that showed that hydroxychloroquine may be effective in treating COVID-19. But again, it's extremely important to keep in mind that these studies need to be done rigorously and thoughtfully and should generate good quality data. And now we know based on new experiences and new studies that hydroxychloroquine may not be the best treatment option for patients with COVID-19. So I need to stress on the fact that evidence for both vaccines and treatments are evolving and the quality of evidence based on the type of clinical trial is incredibly important before either a vaccine or a treatment for COVID-19 can become available for the public. So uh, this information is coming fast and furious. Some of the trials are better designed than others. So to try and make sense of it all, there are registries for people who have cancer and also contract COVID-19 where doctors can submit the information without their personal information attached. And they, the doctors can start looking for patterns to see what is working and what isn't. Right now, there is one specifically for lung cancer. There's one for all cancers. And then there's another one at the NCI for all cancers. And they're getting thousands of pieces of information in from different patients where they're trying to make sense of what would be the best option. That's so fascinating. I think I saw one of those. Um, I think that it was out of Europe, maybe maybe France or, or Spain. They were hit hard, but it had specific data about people living with lung cancer and the COVID infection. So what, um, I know that we did, we're, that information is just right now being compiled. So Janet, you use this term registries, and I just want to make sure that everyone understands what, what a registry is and what kind of information that doctors would be able and researchers would be able to glean from a registry. So there are different types of registries. In this case, doctors who have a patient who qualifies having both cancer and COVID-19 can then take information about what diseases and other coexisting conditions the patient has, what symptoms they're dealing with, what treatments they've received, how they've responded to those treatments. And all that information is put in the registry and then doctors can search for people who've had um, treatment with a steroid for their lung or people who've had treatment 
with an antiviral like remdesivir, which has recently been tested, and see if it's working well in the overall population. Um, and this is important because sometimes patients receive multiple treatments and they might respond well, but we don't know which drug did it. So it helps if we have these large groups of people to be able to sort it all out. This seems to um, be the kind of situation, you know, that old phrase, you'll know this, Janet, you know, like building a plane as you fly. It sure feels like that. Yeah. Oh, look, we forgot the wing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We might need a landing gear. <laughs> And I think one of the things that Janet was bringing up is having large number of patients from whom we can glean information. But even with the smaller registries, which come from single institutions, or even with those registries that come from specific countries, I think two facts are, I think, sort of becoming very, very clear. One is the fact that cancer patients are definitely at a higher risk of developing a more severe form of COVID-19. And the second piece of information that is becoming more and more evident is the type of treatment that a patient may have received, especially a metastatic cancer patient, also affects how severe the type of infection a patient would develop. It isn't just because we're lung cancer patients. In my case, I had radiation to my lungs in two different places. My lungs have been damaged. They don't work as well. Um, people with those situations are going to be less likely to clear out the um, congestion that forms in the lungs. People who are on chemo are having their immune system suppressed. But people on targeted therapies, like you know, taking pills, don't necessarily have their immune system suppressed. So while we know people with lung cancer are at greater risk, we don't yet know why and what part of having lung cancer or being treated for lung cancer is putting them at risk. There might be multiple reasons. So that leads to, um, I think, the biggest question of all and how, you know, how do we apply all of this information that you two are pulling together every year or every, that, that you guys are pulling together every week or every couple of weeks, which is how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep my family safe? Um, how do I... Um, as, as we see, Janet, with the Speakers Bureau, we've got lots and lots of families. So they have little kids. The kids are in school. They've got teenagers. The teenagers, you know, want to see their friends. They've got grandma and grandpa coming over to look after the little kids. They've got um, friends bringing over food to help out if, they, if you're not feeling good from, you know, after, after treatment. So all of the, the different challenges, risks that people need to weigh what do we know um, from from all of this research about how to keep people how to keep yourself safe? So one thing that's becoming pretty clear is that this disease is spread in large part by the droplets that come out of your mouth either through speaking or coughing or sneezing. So wearing a mask is a very good way to protect other people if you happen to have COVID nineteen and since people can still have it with no symptoms. You can't know for sure you don't have it. Um, the masks are not an absolute 100% will protect you if other people have it, but it does seem to reduce the risk. And, and this is all about risk. So some activities are safer than others. Um, if you need groceries, if you order online and go to curbside pickup where the people you don't have to roll down your windows to talk to the person and they put it in the back of the car and they're wearing a mask that's safer than growing in the grocery store and you also 
are less likely to encounter someone who's not wearing a mask. Um, if you want to get out of the house, you can certainly go for a drive as long as you're staying in your car, you're not getting exposed to other people. But being outside and going for a walk in your neighborhood when you're not likely to encounter other people is a lower risk than, say, going to a park where there's a whole bunch of people who may or may not have masks. So it, it's all a matter of taking care of the normal precautions we know were helpful, social distancing, wearing a mask, washing your hands, and then choosing activities that help meet your needs without putting you at greatly increased risks. I have to put in my little public health spiel and I call it the three W's. It's wash your hands, watch your distance, and wear a mask. And I think the three W's definitely go a long way in risk reduction. As Janet mentioned, I think it's very difficult to say that we can have 100% risk reduction, but those three W's definitely go a long way in reducing the risk of contracting COVID-19. I want to bring up one um scenario that seems to be a real concern for a lot of people. And it's a tough one because um, when you're living with lung cancer, you are looking for, um, you know, um, guidance, support, spiritual support in many cases. And so this idea of how do I practice my faith, whatever the faith may be, um, you know, pretty much every faith tradition is about coming together as a group you know, and, and being in community with one another. So, Upal, maybe talk through um, that's a particular challenge for, for using those, the three W's, the watch your distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. What kind of calculation would someone living with lung cancer make in that situation? I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is that the pandemic has taken an immense emotional toll on all of us and a lot of people seek out faith during these very, very difficult times to seek comfort, to seek solace. And we cannot underestimate the importance of uh, having that sense of community, having that sense of comfort during the times of the pandemic. But having said that, I think we can still uh, practice our faith within the norms of public health precautions and and I say that because I've seen, I live in New York City and a lot of churches here have started offering virtual Zoom services. So you can attend mass from the comfort of your uh, home, from your living room, and at the same time have a sense of community. And in fact, when I've spoken to a lot of our doctors who also attend services, that's something they themselves do as well to keep themselves safe, that they attend remote services either at their temple or at their church. So I think that's that's definitely something that I've seen that's becoming more common to have access to your faith, but through a virtual format. You, you don't have to sacrifice your faith to stay safe, but you do still need to think about what activities you're doing. Um, it was it made the news here up in Seattle when a group of people went to choir practice and they said they were socially distancing, but when you sing, you project and the droplets can go further. And they ended up, um, everyone, uh, most of the people tested positive for COVID-19 and a couple of them died. So you need to think about how close you are to other people, still wear a mask. Um, some places are recommending not singing in church if you're going to be there. Um, one of the things they did here in Seattle was they went in 
to a drive-in theater area, and the preacher got up on top of a building with a microphone and everybody sat in their cars. So um, it's tough not to be able to hug. I mean, my, my son works in a grocery store, so he's exposed to people all the time. And I haven't been able to get within six feet of him for four months. So it, it's tough not having the physical contact, but you know, I'd rather have that than be on a ventilator. Janet gives us a glimpse of what it's like to be living with lung cancer during COVID-19. And by the way, that lung cancer advocacy statement, it's available on LCFA's website, along with many of our sister lung cancer organization sites. And it's updated frequently so you can access the latest research as soon as it's available. It's really wonderful to see this type of collaboration that's really helping people who are living with lung cancer during COVID-19. Oh, it really is wonderful. And as usual, it was a great conversation with uh, Speakers Bureau member Janet Freeman Daly and Dr. Upal Basu Roy, the Director of Research at Longevity Foundation. We're so grateful for their help on this podcast. Would you like more Hope With Answers? Visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and so much more information. And make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcasts. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. I'm Sarah Beatty. And I'm Diane Mulligan. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please, consider making a donation to help LCFA fund cutting-edge research that will lead to new treatments and protocols with the goal of greater survival rates for lung cancer patients everywhere. Join us next time.